Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I think some of the myths we grew up with have really been dispelled, right? Um, now, how that happened, I'm not exactly sure, but I do find like the general level of ignorance about what weightlifting does to your body is gone to a large extent, right? We see women training, we see elder people training, we see younger kids training, uh, we see people moving some weight on the bar that you didn't think could maybe 20 years ago, and I think that's awesome. I think that's the best thing ever. Um, and one and one thing our profession in general has done done well with is we provided the general public with so many options, right? Like being on the platform, heavy deadlifts is not for everybody, right? We understand that. But can we get on that platform and swing some kettlebells, throw some med balls? Can we do lunges into a squat rack maybe? Um, there's just so many ways to put training together and so many ways to make it work. The joke I was making, when I meet someone and say they don't like to train, I say, you haven't tried the right training yet. Hi, I'm Pete McCall, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the All About Fitness Podcast. That voice you just heard in the beginning is the guest for this episode, strength coach Angelo Gingerelli. Angelo is a strength coach at Seton Hall University on the East Coast. You may recognize Seton Hall for basketball. It's one of the big basketball schools at the East Coast of the, well, Big East Conference. Shows how much I know about basketball. Short, stocky white guys like me are not necessarily the biggest basketball fans, but I always respect the athleticism of basketball. Anyway, Angelo is a listener of All About Fitness. He's a strength coach, and now he's an author. Along with Richard Borgers, Angelo wrote the book, Finish Strong, Resistance Training for Endurance Athletes. Because here's the deal. Angelo is a strength coach, but Angelo is also just a recreational, like you probably, a recreational runner who enjoys running. And you'll hear why he started running. You'll hear the benefits of running or hear, hear him share the benefits of why he runs. But Angelo wrote the book, you know, Angelo wrote the book, Finish Strong, because he wanted to give endurance athletes out there advice on how to use resistance training to train for their sport better. Runners, cyclists, even swimmers are well known for their ability to do the distance, to do the miles, to do the volume they need to be effective endurance athletes. But if you're a runner yourself, if you're a cyclist yourself, you know 
Yes, you can go out and you can do a century. No problem. You can go run 15, 20 miles. No problem. But going into the weight room, knowing what to do, knowing what you should be lifting. Yeah, there's a problem. And that's exactly why Angelo wrote Finish Strong. So on this episode, Angelo Gingerelli, who is an experienced strength coach and a running enthusiast, talks about what you can do as an endurance athlete to better prepare in the weight room so when you get outside for your favorite activity, you're ready to rock and roll. Here we are with strength coach and author, Angelo Gingerelli, and we're talking about Finish Strong, resistance training for endurance athletes. Today on All About Fitness, we're speaking with strength coach Angelo Gingerelli. Did I get that right, Angelo? Did I pronounce it right? How are you doing today? Yeah, you got close enough. Angelo Gingerelli, that'll work. Gingerelli. See, I, we, I'm from the East Coast too, but I grew up a little bit further south than you, so I didn't grow up around a lot of Italian names, so they don't just roll right off the tongue for me. Uh, no big deal, man. I got a lot of vowels in there, a lot of letters. I, I get it when people don't get it right the first time. <laughs> well, hey, as long as I don't say, hey, you, that then we should be all right. Now, you're a strength coach at Seton Hall. How long, how long have you been a strength coach? I've been a strength coach for just over 20 years. I got in the profession right around 2000. It's 2022 now, obviously. And I've been at Seton Hall since 2005, which is an eternity in college athletics to stay in one job. Uh, I graduated college in the late 90s. Uh, first job was at Virginia Tech as a grad assistant. Got my master's degree there. First full-time job was at North Carolina State. Then I was with the Pittsburgh Pirates for a year. And then right in my late 20s. No, go ahead. Keep going. I'll come back to that. So right in your late 20s. <laughs> The job at Seton Hall opened up, and I grew up a Seton Hall fan. My family's in New Jersey, and I got to be a part of something. I grew up, you know, watching on TV when I was little uh, for most of my adult career. So it's been kind of a cool, cool thing to be a part of. Well, sorry, I was going to pause you real quick, Angelo, because you said when did you do? When were you at Virginia Tech? Your grad assistant at Virginia Tech. Uh, from 99 to 01. So I was a GA the same two years Michael Vick was on the team. That, that, that's exactly where my mind went. Was like you got to see that dude up close. How sick of an athlete is he? Uh, probably the best athlete I've ever seen as far as I know you talked on a show about a month ago about Tom Brady versus athlete versus football player right you guys said that you know, Tom Brady wouldn't be your first pick in an athletic draft but from a football player perspective you know, I don't know if it's even arguable anymore the greatest of all time right no. Michael Vick is the guy you would pick out as the first athlete off the bat or that you would pick in any kind of sport right um and it's, I know when he was 18, 19 years old, he redshirted one year, and I got there the first year he played. And uh, or just at being big, strong, and physical, and and good at everything, I'm not sure if I've been around too many people at that level before or since. Well, let's stand this a moment, Angelo, because I love this because you're right. I mean, we're recording this a couple days before some game they're going to play out here in L.A. I don't know. Count for 60 minutes. I'm not not too familiar. No. Um, but you're right, because and I don't know if people understand the, the, the nuance in that, because being a good athlete is different than being a good at a specific sport. Like, like you said, like I talked about, I would say Brady is probably the best football player ever in history, and no, nobody can deny that. He's been to the Super Bowl half his career. You know, he's the best football player. But I would not say <laughs> I don't think Brady's a good athlete. So how would you how would you define athleticism, and, and how would you explain that statement? 
I I think it's a really interesting question. I love that your show delves into it a little bit every couple of episodes. I think we're going to look at traditional idea of athleticism. It's what kind of coordination control do we have our body? How strong and powerful is that body as far as moving the body itself and maybe an external implement through space and how fast and powerful we can do that. And then I think we're looking at the normal things of, you know, vertical jump, some kind of sprint metric. Maybe it's a 10-yard sprint, a 40-yard sprint, 60 in baseball, whatever it might be. Um, but I think one thing that's interesting about that is our, my profession, particularly college strength and conditioning and professional strength and conditioning, there's a really strong divide between what we think are athletes and what are the best players on the field. And I personally think that's something all of us as fitness professionals got to get better at is maybe making the weight room all-star, the court, field, pool, all-star as well, right? Because you already everybody's got a team with a guy that's the strongest, fastest, highest jumper, isn't the best player on the field. And I kind of think that the future of what the, the guys and girls that will be successful in a profession can meld the two, right? How do you get the person that can jump the highest on the vertex to also be the best guy dunking a basketball on the court? They're not always the same guy, right? And there's a million factors that go into that. And in reality, I think the argument is we all want to be good athletes. We want to be able to have long, productive lives. But if we're talking about professional athletes, you got to do it in the game, right? Because they that weight room all-star, they can't perform in the game. You know what they call him? Broke. No. Nope. Yeah. Nobody pays you to go bench press in a room by yourself, right? So I think we got to find a way to meld those two things and get better at getting the weight room kids to transfer that skill onto the field, the court, whatever they're doing. Well, uh, look in, in full in, in full confession, man. I was at I I, I was not a, I'm not a great athlete, right? I, I'm good in the weight room, and so when I was on my college football team, and notice I was said as on my college football team, I had a top ten. Uh, my 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 three lift, my uh, bench, my bench press power clean and squat were one of the top 10 strength to weight ratios on the team right I was I was top 10 GPA on the team but I was playing I was all team scout team every every week to get to get our offense prepared for the defense they'd be saying on the scene on the weekend but I mean it, but the thing is I mean it, it's one of those things when you're when you're playing a sport at that level whether it's college or professional everybody who's there has some athletic ability now real quick let's let's talk about and I always I always pause, Angelo, because when I have a strength coach on, I always want to define what a strength coach does because you'll sometimes hear people talk about an athletic trainer, and that's not the same thing. So what is the role? What is the function of a strength coach? Of a, and, and technically, I should say a strength and conditioning coach, but what's the role of a strength coach? Great question, man. It really confuses people. I think part of it is that the nomenclature that in, in your world, in the fitness world, a trainer or personal trainer is more similar to a strength coach than an athletic trainer is on the sports side of things, right? So I understand if you're even one step removed from athletics, it gets real confusing real quick, right? But in high school, college, professional athletics, athletic trainers deal with injuries. Right. So whether it's acute injuries and stopping bleeding on the field or getting something splinted or you know, carting a player off the field, that happens, unfortunately, and getting that person the correct medical professional, then implementing rehabs to get that person back on the field. That's an athletic trainer, right? A certified athletic trainer. Strength conditioning coaches are, I guess, the easiest way to put it if you're not involved in athletics. They're kind of like personal trainers for teams at a time. So a typical day for me might be I'm going to have 40 baseball guys in the weight room at 6 a.m. And we're doing, you know, we're separating the pitchers from the position guys. And we're deciding what we need to do during this time of the year to repair these guys' bodies to go and play rigorous 56-game biggest baseball schedule. Uh, we actually start next weekend in this case, right? Um, and then next hour, I'm doing our tennis team. And we're addressing how to get these 
women's tennis players' bodies functioning optimally and moving quick and having good range of motion and, and maintaining mobility and flexibility to go and play two tennis matches in a weekend, whatever it might be. So I think the best way to look at it is kind of like a strength, a, a personal trainer that deals with groups of people at a time. And it's been challenging to some extent, right? Because it's hard. It's, personally training a client is challenging for a host of reasons, right? But personally training a group of 20 or a group of 15 is even harder. So you got to try, it's a, it's a really delicate balance to trying to do the things that are going to be good for the team and what the coaches want to see done, the improvements they want to see made. And at the same time, deal with individuals as this person needs to address A, B, and C to go to the next level physically, right? Uh, so for example, like I think squatting is really good. I think it's a great exercise, right? But if you're going to tell 20 people to squat, you got to go into that realizing that some people are going to have hip mobility problems and we have to address that. If we're going to squat probably maybe two or three of them, some people are going to have Achilles mobility problems. We have to address that with a few of them, right? Some of them might just be incredibly weak and not be able to squat with a barbell on their back. How do you make that work? And eventually have some benchmarks you want to work through to get that whole group to be a good group of guys, you know, men or women that can squat well, but you got to realize that if you're dealing with 20 people in any kind of cross-section demographic, you're dealing with a bunch of different individuals, a bunch of different individual problems you have to address before you get to doing the exercise you really want to do. Yeah, and I think because people don't realize that, Angela, and I think a lot of people also don't realize that that you sometimes have to motivate and encourage an athlete. You, you talked earlier about you have your weight room all-star who might not do well in the field, but how hard is it to get those good athletes to take the weight room seriously? And why I ask that is because I have played ball, played rugby, played football with some phenomenal athletes, but the, they could play. They could play pickup basketball for three hours at a time. They could play pickup touch rugby for three hours at a time. But try to get them in a weight room for a 40, 40, 40 45 minute strength workout. They hate it. So, do you have you experienced that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think there's certain sports, and you know, we'll say that the cliche is every sport has a different culture, right? And it kind of starts from very young until they're in college or professional, until they're lucky enough to play that long. So we don't, we don't have football at Seton Hall. So football players, for the most part, understand the value of the weight room. They know they have to be big and strong. And they've been lifting weights since they were in pop Warner football most of the time. So a college strength coach doing a football team has – now, there's other challenges, right? They might have been training incorrectly. Everyone ideas about training. But they understand a value of lifting weights and getting strong, right? Baseball players, for the last 20, 30 years, understand if you're going to hit a baseball out of a park, you need to look like a lumberjack to do it. Right. Yeah. That's what we've been seeing on TV since the Maguire Sosa era. Um, that, was, that was obviously through like steroids and some other stuff. But at the very least, it made kids realize we want to play baseball. We have to lift weights to some extent. Right. The other sports that are behind to some extent. Right. So we do with soccer, which is a lot of international kids. They've never lifted weights before. There's someone that's never been in a weight room before. Right. Really? Cross country swimmers. It's just not necessarily part of the culture. And it kind of led to the book that we're going to talk about a little bit later as somebody who might my background was so predominantly anaerobic in power sports. Right. Competitive powerlifter for a long time, competitive Olympic lifter for a couple of years. And then after kind of a break in competition, got into mar- marathons. And I was one of the few people that I that I worked with or ever ran with that did any kind of resistance training for about 10 years. And then about a couple of years ago, I was like, well, I'm getting all this value out of doing the two together. I want to help other people be exposed to that and add this resistance training to their, their kind of training. But the, 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 the hardest kids to motivate, kind of you alluded to it, are the ones that are almost supernaturally talented right because we're trying to say let's do this thing that's hard and grueling and maybe get you up early in the morning and not fun a lot of the times so you could get a little bit better 
well, if you're already the best player on your team or the best player in your conference, how much better do you need to get to some extent, right? What I always tell our players are, number one, if you have any aspirations at all of playing professionally, and realistically at Seton Hall, our men's basketball players have a shot, right? We had a couple of guys drafted every few years. And our baseball team, which is close to a dynasty in the Northeast, has guys drafted every year, right? And my argument is, if the, what you want to call it God-given, evolutionary, whatever talents you have are good enough to play in the Big East, that's awesome. Understand, if, you, if you're lucky enough to get drafted, everybody you're going to play against and fight for a position with was the best player at their college and probably their conference, right? So you got to keep finding ways to elevate your game and realize that you're really good playing against these boys and girls. This next level is men and women. And I think I have some ways that can help you go ahead and do that. And kids are usually fairly receptive to that. I think the, the media, you know, the media can be good and bad now. We see our players lifting weights now. We see LeBron's Instagram or lifting weights and taking care of his body, which I think is a kind of a positive thing. Everybody hates social media. Not, not everything online is a great piece of training advice. We know that, right? But some of it is enough to make a young kid that follows Steph Curry realize there's a value to taking care of your body and lifting weights. That wasn't a thing, let's say, 20, 30 years ago, right? Um, that's kind of the way, way I, I take it that, you know, even if you're good enough to play here, if you're on the next level, this can help you. And the other, the other thing I always make, the other example I always give, if you look at pro sports, the guys that are around the longest and make the most money over long careers, take care of their bodies. Right. I think we're about the same age. I was a huge Allen Iverson fan, right? Allen Iverson's lifestyle did not let him make as much money in the NBA as he could have. Right. And I'm from the Jersey Shore where J.R. Smith is from. J.R. Smith is maybe the funniest person on the internet of the last 10 years, right? But that out every night, closing every club in the city, bottle waitress lifestyle didn't work. He's not in the league anymore, right? So I think if you're going to play at a, a game at any kind of high level and want to do it into your 30s, you got to find a way to take care of your body and let your, you know, your body's your most important investment for regular people. But for a- athletes that make all of their money and livelihood on their body, you got to take care of that, that, in, that investment. Well, but let's take a step back, and you're right, because you and I are in this generation, Angelo, where in the 80s, and this is what, this blows me away, and at some point, I think what I'm going to do is I want to write a book on the history of strength and conditioning, not the history of fitness, that's a different thing, because when you look at it, it's it's only been since like the mid to late 1990s that we've had professional athletes doing off-season conditioning, because in the 80s, when we grew up, I mean, the whole reason why you have football camp Two days is to get the guys in shape. Is so the, the guys would come in. They'd come in in mid July for the pros. They need to get in shape to play ball. Now you have and the same thing with spring training. The reason why you go to Florida for six weeks for spring training is so everybody gets in shape to play ball. But now athletes stay in shape all year round. At what point did that transition happen? At what point do you, in your observation, Angelo, throughout your career? And I still know we have a lot of work to do. But at what point? Do you think the professional athletes started saying, I need to stay in shape all year round? I just don't need to show up early. I need to stay in my – they might not be in game shape, but they got to stay fit all year round. When, when did that take place? When did that happen? I think I agree. Probably right around the mid-'90s. Because uh, by the time I was in the profession, that was already kind of widely accepted. right? So I think you're right. The 80s, definitely not. Early 90s, probably not. And I, I think what probably started happening is you had early adopters – that had this idea of like, I'm going to build on my body every year, try to get better, try to get better at one aspect of my fitness, my movement, whatever it might be. And I like to think what happened is those guys and girls got better than the people that didn't. Right. And now if you were the kind of person that could kind of coast and go hunting and fishing in the off season and hang out with your family and not train and show up, you know, day one of camp and be ready to go. 
those people that took care of their body are starting to surpass you on the depth chart, right? Starting to be better than you. And then it became widely accepted, right? Um, now I think, you know, I guess the other thing happened from a financial standpoint, the teams and organizations realize that if we're going to pay these guys 12 months a year and these tens of millions of dollars, they have to take care of their, their bodies and be ready to go. And we need them to be ready to go. So I think a combination of maybe seeing the first couple people do it and then be successful and the organizations realize the value of it and hiring full-time training and distant coaches um, kind of spurred that thing on. But for the history of training and distant, what I think is amazing is if you go back to the late 90s, we're talking less than 25 years ago, there were pro teams that didn't have a strength and conditioning person, right? They might have had an athletic trainer, and now that athletic training person is a mini department of three or four people, right? There might be three to five strength coaches easily, depending on what sport we're talking about, and there might be a, t- you know, a couple nutritionists around. There might be a, mas- a couple massage therapists on staff. There might be recovery people coming around day after game, whatever, contract employees, whatever it might be. Um, and our profession has just, as you learned more about the human body, it's just grown so exponentially and what these, these teams, these organizations, these players value. Um, it's kind of a really cool time that guys in our generation got to see that go from like one person in charge of everything to it might be a 25 person staff for an NFL football team just based on keeping it. And then some of the guys have personal trainers that they work with on top of the team staff. Right. So you're dealing with you know a, a team of people trying to keep somebody like, I don't know, say LeBron James or Tom Brady just going and on the field and being productive for in those guys cases, 20, you know, about 20 years. Well, think about it, man. I mean, when you look back, it, like, say, let's take, and again, I'm not a huge basketball fan, but I was around the 80s when you had Larry Bird, you had Michael Jordan coming up, and I think it was Jordan who's one of those first big top-level athletes to work with Tim Grover in the offseason, and that's when it kind of, I think that's when it really accelerated. But imagine, you know, Larry Bird would have had another five or six years on his career. He wouldn't have gone out with a bad back. You would have had, you know, Magic. I mean, imagine Magic in an SNC program, man. That dude would have been off the hook. I mean, you look back at some of those. So do you think, I mean, do you ever think about that? And I know we can't go back in time. That's kind of not. Right. But, I mean, imagine that. If you had some of those early superstars, like, you know, you, you guys like Lawrence Taylor. Could you imagine Lawrence Taylor on a full 12-month out of the year SNC program, how sick he would have been? Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy thing to think about, man. And you know what? I'm a, uh, I'm not like a super old school guy. Like I don't like reminisce on the past that much. But I'll tell you one thing during the pandemic, I don't think they did this really, but when sports kind of stopped, they start the sports networks in the Northeast started playing old games, right? Yeah. So like Knicks games from the Patrick Ewing era, uh, New Jersey Nets games from like the Derek Coleman era, uh, the Yankees and Mets games from back in the 80s and 90s. And it's, it, because it happened so gradually, right? And how big and strong and fast the players are now. As a fan, I didn't realize it. Like, I didn't realize there was a drastic difference between Aaron Judge and Don Maddox. You're a Yankees fan, right? Just the, 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 the species of human they are from, from generation to generation. But then I started watching those old games. And, like, every time I watched an old NBA game from the 80s, I had two questions. Is this in slow motion? And why are these guys short so short? Why are you <laughs> dressing them up for these games? But you start watching old games and you're like, I don't know, man. I enjoyed Washington's at the time, but the, the era is just so different. You know what I mean? Um, and part of it is now, like, everybody is big and strong and looks good in the uniform. Not that that matters a ton, but they, they look different, right? Um, They're jumping higher. They're, they're shooting more threes. It's just that the games are changing and going super towards more athleticism. Um, and it's the kind of... Well, you never. I listen to sports, right? I listen to like the Dan Patrick show, and I listen to like Rich Eisen and one or two other. And they they don't talk about it that much. They don't talk about the role the SNC plays. Because to go back to your example for Allen Iverson, dude would have had a sick career. He could have gotten another five years. He could have gotten that last contract if he had kept his body right and if he had had the right mindset 
towards training. And we all know that practice, wait, this it's just practice. But right. practice where you put the work in, so what you do on the court becomes a reflex. You don't think about what your your body does on the court. You know, when you look at this, so let's transition because a lot of the listeners are not college athletes, mm-hmm. but what role and because a lot of people when they go to the gym, they go to the gym, they work on their mirror muscles, meaning they do a bodybuilder type program. But what can the average fitness consumer take from a strength and conditioning world? Meaning like if I'm going to a 24-hour fitness or an LA fitness, why, what, what can I adopt from strength and conditioning into my own workout program? Cool. I think, I think one thing my, my little segment of the fitness world has done well in the last 20 years, we're always – there's never enough time to train the teams the way you want to. Right? You only have so many hours a week through the NCAA. Um, then kids have classes, internships, all this other stuff, practice schedules, all this stuff going on. So I think one thing, being super efficient with your time, right, and that it doesn't have to be do a set of bench press and then sit down, look at your Instagram, let the next song play on your headphones and go to the next day. The idea of moving through a workout, I think is something a lot of people can learn from, right? The idea of like, we only have so many hours in our day. We only have so many hours to spend in the gym. Can we do that set of bench press? And then maybe do a set of abs in between, superset it with a pull possibly, and then go back to the next set of bench press and really make the most of our time in the gym. And that's something we do pretty well. I think for healthy adults, the, the idea of incorporating big multi-joint movements into your training for number one, efficiency, number two, caloric expenditure, and number three, just central nervous system activation and, and moving well, stuff like squats, bench presses, you know, Olympic lifts and their variations, plyos and med balls. And that stuff's really good, right? And to some extent, we've seen the explosion of CrossFit in the last 15 years because they took those very basic SMC ideas and kind of made them palpable to the regular person, right? And now CrossFit's not for everybody. I'm not saying it is, but if you're a healthy adult and want to burn a lot of calories in a little bit of time and have a good time doing it, that might be a good option for you. So I think just efficiency of training and then incorporating those big multi-joint lifts, whether they be Olympic lifts, power lifts, whatever it is, um, and trying to get the, the most bang out of every minute you're in the gym is something we've been pretty good at. Well, if you look at the commercial gym, Angelo, the commercial gym, like the company I started working for recently, EOS Fitness, some of our gyms look like a strength and conditioning room from 20 years ago, meaning that even 10, 12 years ago, you could not go into a 24-hour fitness or an LA fitness or whatever and see weight platforms and see Olympic platforms. There was zero. I mean, it was CrossFit that said, hey, Olympic lifts have a benefit. They have a space. And now any large gym you go to at some of our facilities, we got eight to ten platforms that are being used. Dude, these things, I mean, I can walk into my facility up in Ladera Ranch. I can walk into my club not far from here. And at what? We're recording this at 1030 a.m. California time. Of the eight platforms, probably seven of them will be full, and probably of those seven, three or four of them would be full with women. And so that's been a huge, you know, have you noticed that too, that as women come into your into, into college sports, into Seton Hall, are they a little bit more adaptable to strength training? Are they a little bit more into the, the S&C program? Yeah, and I think that's one thing that that this generation, the, the, the people who call them kids now, people are like between 15 and 30, say, the idea that women shouldn't lift weights and that women are you're going to get big and strong and look like bodybuilders, or you're going to get inflexible. I think some of the myths we grew up with have really been dispelled, right? Um, Now, how that happened, I'm not exactly sure, but I do find like the general level of ignorance about what weightlifting does to your body 
is gone to a large extent, right? We see women training, we see elder people training, we see younger kids training, uh, we see people moving some weight on the bar that you didn't think could maybe 20 years ago. And I think that's awesome. I think that's the best thing ever. Um, and, one, and one thing our profession in general has done, done well with is we pro- provided the general public with so many options, right? Like being on the platform, heavy deadlifts is not for everybody, right? We understand that. But can we get on that platform and swing some kettlebells, throw some med balls? Can we do lunges into a squat rack maybe? Um, there's just so many ways to put training together and so many ways to make it work. The joke I was making, when I meet someone and say they don't like to train, I say you haven't tried the right training yet. Like everybody will probably like something, go, go figure it out and try it. But there's so many options out there. Um, and I think that's kind of the, the ignorance of women shouldn't lift weights, the elderly shouldn't lift weights, kids shouldn't lift weights. The kids thing, I guess, we you know, can argue any of these forever. But for the most part, some kind of physical activity and some kind of resistance training to stimulate muscle growth and hypertrophy are really good. The other thing I think that's happened, too, with the idea of training throughout the lifespan, I know you guys are big, your your show tackles that a lot. We're kind of the first generation to see our parents get to live and our grandparents live really long, right? We're, statistically, people are living longer. So we're seeing more people 80, 90, 100 years old than we've ever seen before. But unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of those people not have great lives, right? They have, they have no, a lot of them have incredibly low amounts of muscle mass, a hard time getting from point A to point B, tons of breathing issues, can't play with their grandkids, can't do steps, can't get in and out of a car anymore. And I think maybe even subconsciously, the people that are, say, like 50 to 30 now are realizing, statistically, I'm going to make it that long. If everything goes well, I want to have a better experience in old age than I'm seeing my grandparents and parents have, right? And I think our, you know, educationally, we kind of get the idea of a lot of that starts with being doing enough physical activity to have a decent cardiovascular base, enough postural and structural muscles to just stand up straight, which a lot of older people can't do anymore. Um, and then just, just movement for the, for lack of a better term. Yeah. And that's, that's such a great point because I do think, I don't know about you, man, but when I go to the gym and I see somebody that, that I think is 20, 25 years older than me and I still see them getting after it, dude, I don't know about you. I get fired up. I'm like, I want to be that person in 20, 25 years, whether it's a man or a woman, you can tell they're probably in their late sixties, early seventies. And they're still, I'm like, oh, damn that, you know, I don't know about you, but that's like my motivation, right? No, no question. I think that that's the goal, right? The goal is to be able to retire and enjoy your retirement and be, if you like running and be running every morning instead of going to work, if that's your thing, if you like swimming, do that. Um, and be able to play with your grandkids if you're lucky enough to have them and, and not be homebound and walk around and be active the whole time. You know what I mean, um, I'm, I'm a big fan motivation wise. If anybody I see getting after it, that to the eyeball test looks like they shouldn't be getting after it, right? Like I, lo- I love seeing women work out. I love seeing moms with kids work out with the kids, dad work out with the kids. Um, I think like there's for so long there's been such a weird the perspective that weightlifting is for big, strong, jack bodybuilders, and the gym is not for anybody else. In reality, that's one or two percent of our population, and the gym's what the gym with the marks, whatever you're using at the gym, should be for everybody. You're gonna everybody can benefit from some kind of physical activity. You got to take the time to find out where you're comfortable and what you feel comfortable doing. Well, that and that's why you know we'll transition to talk about your book. But that, but Angela, that's exactly why I decided to take this job with, with uh, EOS Fitness is because our price point is between ten and twenty five dollars a month for membership. Is we can give, we can allow access to so many more people at that price. So now fitness is not prohibitive. Fitness is now more accessible by everybody. It's just a matter of helping them understand the benefits. And then the other thing too is we don't need to kill ourselves to use exercise to improve our health. 
right? And I think a lot of people have that misperception of, oh, if I'm going to exercise, man, I got to pound myself into the ground or else it's not worth it. But sometimes even those lower intensity extra workouts are a good value. Now, I want to transition to talk about Finish Strong, your book. You said something earlier, dude, that I think is amazing. So you did powerlifting competitions and you did some O-lifting. And, and I'll have you describe the difference between powerlifting and O-lifting. But you went from that to, to do an endurance. How tough was that? And, and talk about that a little bit. Okay. Real, real quick. I, I think you're giving me a little too much credit because the, the – uh, the scenario, it wasn't like I walked off the Olympic weightlifting platform and put my running shoes on and went for a 20-mile run. There's a lot of time in between the two. As if you know anything about those sports, there's, there's kind of got to be. So I was I, I was super lucky in the 90s. I went to a public high school in New Jersey that had a, a good weight room for the 90s and a great strength and conditioning coach. He was a physics teacher, one of the biggest mentors in my life. His name is Ron DeVito. We still talk about once a month. And I, just, I started lifting weights to play sports, and I just fell in love with the weight room. To use a cliche. Just made some of my best friends there. My school had a powerlifting program. And I got into it you know, about 16, 17 on the young side, but got really into the squat, the bench, and the deadlift and competing uh, all through high school and through a lot of college. And then when I was at Virginia Tech, I started getting pretty serious into the Olympic lifts. I started learning them to coach them better, right? Got certified by USAW and then decided I liked that enough to compete a few times, a couple of years in Olympic weightlifting. So that takes me to my mid-20s. And then I kind of just, just, just I become a strength coach. I'm working a million hours. I'm teaching classes. I started a family um, and things were going great, but I really wasn't competitive. And I was writing for a local magazine called Fit in New Jersey. And once a week, the staff would meet up and go on runs. And then they started doing 5Ks together. And that just kind of, kind of blah, I like running 5K. Let me try half marathon. All right, that went well. Let me try a marathon. So in my early 30s, I ran my first marathon, which is about 10 years ago now, and just really got into it. Really liked it. Really liked the training. Um, joke I was making with the college kids here at C and all. When they say they don't like running, I'm always like, well, if you're 21, and your whole life is great, and you're going out, and you're partying, and everything's fun. Running is not that fun compared to the rest of your life, right? <laughs> Be 40, have a kid, have a mortgage, have your car payment, and then going running is the best thing I do a lot of days, right? And I like my life. I have a good middle age. <laughs> well, I, I need a moment because, dude, I love that. I, 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 I love that concept. Well, yeah, when you're 21, going out for a long run, it's like, why on earth would I do that? But at 41, like, good God, I need 45 minutes by my – I never thought about that. I love that. Yeah, man, like, let, let's keep it real. We like running, but I like running exactly inverse to how great the rest of my life is. You know what I mean? <laughs> I got a six-year-old daughter, dude, and I love her to death. But there's some Saturday mornings we're on the seventh episode of Peppa Pig, and I'm like, I got to get her running. We got to go out. Let's go. Um, yeah, I think that's something where it, it's a cool activity you get into as you get older. And then you really just it, – it's one of the few places if you have a, a job that requires a lot of you like ours do and a family that, that asks a lot of you. You, it's one of the few places you can get away from all that and either be alone with your thoughts or listen to your music or your podcast or whatever and uh, and kind of be alone and get your thoughts right for the rest of the day. So I think there's definitely a uh, – not to sound like super out there, but I think there's a spiritual component to that kind of thing that is really valuable as you get a little bit older in life. Well, I, I just like – I talk about it on, on the on the podcast is I, I, I enjoy trail running but a couple years ago, I, I had a pretty gnarly uh, stress fracture in my foot and some arthritis in my knee. As much as I would like to trail run, I just don't do it because I am so I get so banged up. But I've really gotten into hiking and, and trying to do some rocking. And that to me, and, and that's where for listeners, if you exercise for no other reason, just to have 30 to 45 minutes to yourself to listen to your favorite podcast or, or a book on tape, 
that to me is honestly almost the true value of exercise. It's our permission to kind of put out, shut off the rest of the world for 30 to 45 minutes and say, I'm going to focus on, talk about self-care. I'm going to focus on me for a little bit. Do you ever talk about that with your college athletes? Do they ever kind of, because for them, I'm sure you're in the athletes in your program are probably like, they, they view exercise as a means to be a better athlete. Do, do you ever try to just talk to them about, hey, man, this is going to be stuff you need for life? I, you know what? I, actually, I did it earlier today. One of them, I'm an adjunct professor, too, and I tell one of my classes. I make a joke every year, and it's, it's unfortunately true, is that if you're a college athlete, you're working on about 20 hours a week within practice, lifting, skill sessions, whatever it might be, right? I'll say goodbye to a kid at graduation that is a physical specimen, abs, Big shoulders, small waist is a CrossFit model, right? A year later, I'll see that kid in an alumni event, and he or she will look at they eat the mushroom on Super Mario Brothers. They gain so much weight in a year. <laughs> and the thing is, if you keep eating and drinking and partying like you did in college and go from 20 hours a week of mandatory physical activity to zero hours a week, you are going to be obese by the time you're 30. There's really no other way around that, right? So what I try to teach people is, realize that your physical activity is going to drop. If you have any kind of day job, you're not going to work out 20 hours a week, right? So you got to find a way, a combination of changing your lifestyle, right? Probably more sleep, probably less alcohol, and probably less or different kinds of food. And now you're going to be doing less physical activity, but find something you like enough to do. What I kind of find with college athletes, this is not a statue on my eyeball test. If you can stay active from when you graduated, let's say 22, till about 25 or 26, you got a pretty good shot at staying active and decently, quote unquote, in shape the rest of your adult life, right? If you look at, at the mandatory workouts you're doing in college, it's just torture and the end of it's the light down the tunnel, and you can't wait to go home and do nothing and start your career. At those first couple of years, it's going to be a real hard road to get back into any kind of shape and be healthy after that. So I think the biggest thing, I think all athletes deal with this, right? They look at, I'm lifting weights, I'm playing sports as a means to it, whether it's a degree, whether it's a contract, whether it's a check, whatever it is. But to some extent, we have to realize that fitness in some capacity, whatever that means to you, is going to be, it has to be a, a lifetime part of your life, component for the rest of your life. Yeah, and that, that's so important. That, that brings us back to running because running and even other endurance events like cycling or swimming are activities because think about it, cycling is low impact. I mean, if you're doing it right, and swimming is, is zero impact. So, what do what do endurance athletes, people who are into endurance sports, why should they focus on strength training? Because you're absolutely right. You mentioned it earlier, Angelo. Traditionally, a lot of runners will go out and they'll do the volume, they'll do their interval work, they might do their speed day, but they really haven't taken full advantage of what the weight room can do. So what can the weight room do if people enjoy enjoy running or any endurance activity? How can the weight room help them be better? Right. I think a couple of things you want to look at. Number one, can we prevent some injuries, right? Can we make the body strong enough and durable enough that we can finish a marathon or finish a training season or finish a triathlon and feel good about ourselves? Too many of the people I've trained with over the years, at the end of that training cycle, they're physically, mentally, emotionally exhausted and can't wait for it to be over. In my opinion, if we're training, let's find a way to make that feel good and feel like we're getting better. So that's definitely nutrition. It's definitely hydration. It's definitely sleep. But part of it is if we're not strong and durable enough to withstand all those miles on the bike, yards in the pool, or miles on the on the track, 
we're never going to be able to really enjoy that training and have our body get better. Right? We're always going to end up just emaciated and depressed and feeling terrible about the world and ourselves. And I think we can avoid that with some pretty basic resistance training and maintaining some muscle mass, right? The other thing I think we're going to look at getting actually better at our endurance event, what I always say to people is take your camera, go to the start line of any race from a 5K to an ultra marathon. Everybody looks good the first mile, right? Chest is up, shoulder pulled back, everybody's cruising along, they look great. Photograph those same people at the end, and everybody's running mechanics are bad, mine included, okay? So can we find a way to make the last mile look like the first mile and have good posture, good breathing, good movement mechanics, and finish, not to use the cliche in the book, but finish strong as opposed to dragging ourselves across that finish line, right? We love the idea of somebody being just exhausted and dragging their body across a finish line and being laid out afterwards. But what about you just run completely upright with good mechanics, finish strong, have a great time, maybe PR, have water, and then get ready for the next race the next day. You know what I mean? And that's well, kind of one thing. But, but, that, but again, that comes back to this mindset of, if we exercise, we're supposed to be in pain and we're supposed to thrash ourselves. But what you just said there, which is why I, I cut in, is if you train right, the race should be a little bit hard, but you should finish that race and, and you should feel fatigue. But there's a difference. And how would you describe the difference between the fatigue of having run a good race based on good training and the exhaustion maybe from being slightly overtrained or just not preparing correctly? Why is fatigue sometimes a good thing? Okay, so to get better, we need to fatigue our body in some whatever we're training for, right? That's how we get better. I think the problem we see with too many, this is from college athletes, maybe high school athletes to elder people, we, we zero in and go so hard at the fatigue part of it and leave the recovery side of it out, right? I think this goes back to so many people don't understand how the human body works. I'm not a physiologist. I'm in no way a genius in any way. But in general, you break your body down when you train, right? You build it up when you recover from that training. And little by little, you make incremental improvements in the process of building and destroying, right? The problem is we only market and want to talk about the destruction phase of that, right? It's how much can you squat? How many miles can you run? We don't ask anybody, how much sleep did you get last night? How much water did you drink, right? How much time did you spend in the cold tub? If you think that's a good thing. And I think that's part of the problem. We all want to talk about our PR in the gym or the most miles we've ever run or the most laps we've ever swam. But nobody brags about, oh, I ate three grilled chicken breast and brown rice and broccoli last night. Now I feel great. I think we gotta, got to think about that, that recovery time and start stressing that a little bit more from when kids are young. And then the idea that you're not getting stronger when you're in the gym, you're getting stronger when you're covering what you did in the gym. The thing that I, the one thing in the book that I think is pretty serious for endurance athletes are all of us, myself included, I see if you agree with this or not, that we struggle with two things, too much fatigue, right? If you're covering enough ground to be a better endurance athlete, your body should feel fatigued a lot of the time, right? That makes the weight room harder. Because now instead of teaching a person who's fresh, good central nervous system activation and ready to squat, you're with somebody who is exhausted to begin with, right? Secondarily, too little time. If you're an adult and you have a job and a family and other responsibilities and you're running, cycling, swimming a couple hours a day, how much time do you really have to lift weights after that, right? Now, I, I agree, and it's in the book, I'm sure you agree too, you make time for what you find important. But the ideas in the book are we realize you're pre-fatigued and we realize you're pressed for time. The stuff we present are ways to not not tell you to just get better at those two things, but fit some workouts in, acknowledging those two factors in your life. Well, and then what role? Like, how do you how do you how do you integrate um, in the book? Do you do you lay out a schedule for how people should train for a run? And then when you do that, what role does like stuff like interval playing, Trey, 
um, does interval playing? Let me let me ask that question again. When you lay out a schedule and lay it out in the book, you you obviously give people workout advice to follow and examples of workout. And the question I have is, what role does interval playing uh, does interval training play? That's what I'm trying to say. What role does interval training play? Because for listeners, you might be familiar with high intensity interval training as like the workout fad, but in reality. Interval training comes from running because it allowed runners to improve capacity, aerobic capacity, without having to build volume. So how do you how do you address that in the book? Yeah, great question. And we kind of just for the, the focus of, of this book, our first book together, me and Dr. Richard Borders, we want to really focus on the resistance training side of it and present some programs you could put in, kind of plug and play your days and your training sessions around the running you're already doing. Right now, I think we can all agree interval training is super important, particularly if you want to get faster. Right, if you don't want to just run 20 miles to say you did and not care about the time, but have a better time and a better finish, we need to push that anaerobic capacity, you know, fairly often once or twice a week, and that's where we really get stronger. Um, but I think there's so many different ways you can attack that that are that are positive and will work. We kind of took a step back and said, as long as you're doing your long runs, let's say on the weekends, and your intervals and mid-distance stuff during the week, here's some some workout templates and some workouts you can you can plug and play around that, right? Um, but I do think the biggest thing, especially if you're new to weight training, is to plan your resistance training sessions for success. And what I mean by that is doing heavy squats on Monday and then a hard interval workout on Tuesday is not going to work. Agreed? Yeah, right? no, I mean, you're, you're, in a over, you're in over fatigue. Right. So can we find a way that if you know your big interval day is Tuesday, maybe Monday is maybe some goblet squats, some dumbbell RDLs, some upper body, uh, body weight resistance stuff. And then you get to the track, crush those, those intervals on Tuesday, Wednesday's maybe more recovery day. Thursday, we can lift a little bit, right? Get the barbell out, maybe we can squat, RDL, bench press. Maybe Friday's a recovery day, Saturday's a long run, something like that. But I do think one thing that, that endurance athletes do a lot, particularly in January, right? You got the all the New Year's resolution people. They go, I'm going to start this new thing and go all out at it. And they feel terrible because they're introducing too many new things at once, right? I think a better idea is take one variable in January and try to add that to your programming in your life and master that. And then maybe February, add a second variable in, whatever that might be, right? And kind of let your body get used. I think particularly as I've gotten older, I've kind of realized that like new year, new me kind of thing fails so often because people try to make it too much of a new year, new me, and not the idea of a year is 12 months. Because all the changes don't have to happen January 1st. Bring something, bring one new thing in January, master. Bring one new thing in February, master that. And if you master 12 new things by the end of the year, that's a good year, right? Well, I, I just spoke uh, – one of the interviews that will be coming up for listeners, actually it will probably be posted, is I believe with Dr. Stone. I don't have the name right in front of me. But he talks about the benefit of as we age of learning and playing new sports because it introduces those new variables into our body. So and one of the reasons why I wanted to make, have this conversation now, Angelo, is we're coming out of the winter season. We've been inside training. We've been at the gym. We've been on, on the stationary bike. We've been on the rowing machine. We've been on the treadmill. If I've been logging 8 to 10 miles on a treadmill, doing my winter runs, doing my off-season runs, how should I make that transition to outdoor running? Because, A, first question, what's the difference between training indoors and training outdoors? And second question is, how long should we prepare to, to allow our bodies to adapt from the two different environments? 
Okay, great, great question this time of year. I think number one, the, the, the biggest difference is in any kind of indoor cardio machine, you're not moving your body mass through space, right? So you're getting a cardiovascular workout. You can't argue that if you're on a bike or a treadmill, whatever it is. But your musculature is not moving your, let's say, 200-pound body, whatever it might be, from point A to point B, especially if point A is 10 miles from point B, right? So the biggest thing we have to do is let's say you're doing 10 miles on a treadmill and feeling pretty good about it. When you make that transition outside – Drop that down a little bit, right? We're not doing going 10 miles on the trail, 10 miles on the street. Make it four, five, six, something like that the first couple of runs out there. And I like to say, too, is kind of drill for a hybrid approach. Like maybe if you're on the treadmill three days a week and now it's getting nice out, you want to go run three days a week. Maybe do two on the tread, one on the street, one the first week, then two, one and two, whatever it might be, and kind of slowly transition out of it. Particularly for older people, I think, and by older, I mean, let's say, you know, 40 and up. That, that kind of like hard stop of one activity to start another activity can be a recipe for disaster, right? And just kind of get your body ready for it and make the transitions gradually and be smart about it. And, and, and then I think the other thing it's hard for if you're in a little bit competitive, it's hard to listen to your body sometimes, right? If you got in, we're in New Jersey, you got that first nice day and everybody gets outside because they're, they're sick of the treadmill, sick of the bike, I'm doing seven miles. And then mile three, your Achilles are tight and you're hurting and you're kind of hobbling and your mind won't let you stop and walk home. Well, now you're going to deal with that much longer than if you made the smart decision to kind of stop, go home, maybe go see your doctor, whatever it might be, and address the problem early on. But you got to be kind of smart about it and, and make the transitions gradual. I think probably the older we get, the more gradual we want to make those transitions from one season to another to make it healthy and successful. And, and the thing is, man, the most important thing at this point, and I know runners sometimes, runners are like, runners like pain and, and runners think that, you know, runners use pain as like, okay, I must be doing this right because my body's in pain. But I just want to just highlight that for listeners. If you start making that transition to your outdoor runs, your Achilles is feeling wonky, something's feeling wonky, stop, walk. Especially in early March, you don't want to. You don't want to ruin your. You're in March. You're in the first couple of weeks of being outdoors. Why risk a, a, a tendon issue or a sore ligament that's going to bother you for the next 10, 12 weeks and not allow you to get outside and, and not allow you to get outside and enjoy your runs? Why is it so important to listen to our bodies? Yeah, it's it's, it's such a weird thing because I think I'm like a fairly bright person, right? But when I get in that that exercise mode and my my adrenaline's pumping and I'm, I'm mentally committed to doing something. I'm not even great at it, right? Um, so I think with endurance athletes, with athletes in general, the gift and the curse is you have this, this mentality of I'm going to accomplish this thing today, right? And most of the time, that's a good way to go through life. I'm going to agree with that, right? Have a goal, attack it like a lunatic, check it off when it's done, move on to the next goal. Until you're in a situation where you're hurting your body, and the, the biggest thing that's hard to understand, young people don't get this at all. Middle-aged people get it a little bit. Older people seem to understand a little better, is that hopefully, if you're lucky, life is long, right? So if you look at like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hopefully live 100 years, things go well, right? I'm not going to do something in the 40th year that's going to affect the next 60, right, and make them worse. So I think while working out is super important and it's great, you got to be smart about it enough so that, you know, you don't do something when yeah, you see athletes do it all the time, man. They make a decision to, to go back into a game or play one more season. And I, and I'm not, I'm not foolish. I understand in professional sports, the amount of money you can make on that last contract can alter the, the direction of your family for generations. And you should probably do that in most cases. Right. Well, like if you're in high school and your high school year is on the season and you're not going to play in college and you're going to hurt yourself ever, maybe you got to step back and think about that a little bit. And I'm also acknowledging that is 
way easier said than done. Because even in my, I think I'm pretty experienced. I've run a lot of races. I've competed in a lot of different sports. I get my mind right sometimes about something and I just won't stop. And then the next day I'm like, well, that was really stupid. So you got to try to be as smart as you can, as smart as your body and your mind will let you be. And we all learn with that. And that, that's exactly where I've gotten with, with my age and experience. Now, getting ready to wrap up, what I want to talk a little bit about now is, is recovery. You've mentioned it, and I'm sure you go into it in the book. But what I want to, what I want to ask about is how, what's your thought process as we see, and I know it's not as popular this year, but two or three years ago, the idea of quote-unquote load management, of taking games off in the NBA, or maybe a college football player skipping that, you know, if you're, why why play in the sunshine, whatever Fruit Loop Bowl? If if, right. if you got a legitimate chance to go in the first three, or if you got a legitimate chance in the draft, why on earth go play a bowl when you're not competing for a ring? You know, I get it. If you're if you're in Alabama or LSU and you're going to be playing a, and you want to play for that final game where you're going to win a, a ring, by all means, go for it. But if you're on a team and you have a legitimate shot at playing the next level, why am I going to put my body at risk in that bowl game? I mean, what are you, what, what's your as a strength coach? What's your reaction to that kind of those changes, the way we look at, okay. at college sports? Completely fair. Um, I could not agree more on the football bowl game situation. Um, when you're in a situation where you're making no money as a college athlete, right, and you have a chance at generational wealth, I don't, I don't think playing a game makes any sense. I don't think anyone – no one can justify that except for, let's keep it real, the coaches and the schools and the companies are going to make money from that kid playing. No one in their right mind will tell the kid to play. Fair? The NBA thing, I think, is a little different. And I think because, number one, they're being paid to play X amount of games. It's literally if you have a nine-to-five job telling your boss you're not working Fridays because you're tired. But you'll be better I hadn't thought about it like that, right? but you're right. No, it's not different. You're, you're an employee. You're not a student athlete. You're not being exploited. You're being paid to do a job, right? Um, I don't go to that many NBA games because the, the Knicks and Nets have not been really good. But the last couple of years, the Knicks have been Nets better. I went to a Nets game a couple of years ago, and this is the conversation was happening, right? Uh, the tickets were $130 plus parking, plus food, plus I had to take a night of my life to do it. And I had a great time, right? But if we were playing the Lakers and LeBron was just chilling in a business suit because he didn't feel like it that night, somebody got to give me my money back because I bought a ticket to something you didn't provide. It's literally you bought a movie ticket to the last Spider-Man movie and Spider-Man didn't show up. So you pay for the full ticket? I don't I don't know the answer to that. Um, and I get the whole thing. It's more important to playoffs. These guys have to their bodies. But when you're dealing with a paying customer base and you're being paid, in my opinion, I think you got to show up and play. That's that's my little stroke box, man. Do you agree I, with that? No, I, I would agree. One, I, I agree 100% on both those points is – yeah, if you're a 21, 22-year-old kid and you got a legitimate chance, chance of that contract, I'm not going to go play in the Pullman Weed Eater Bowl or whatever, whatever. I mean, come on, man. I, I'm going to save myself for the combine. I'm going to save myself whatever team picks me up. And, no, you're right. I mean, that's – hey, look, I, I say this all the time. I, I, I spent four seasons working NFL game days with the Washington Redskins. I've seen how fans react. I've seen how, how fans do things. I would never spend the money – to take my kids to one of those big-time sports just for that reason. I wouldn't want to spend the money and not have a player play. I wouldn't want to spend the money and have some drunk idiot in front of me just ruin the experience for everybody. So, you know, it's, it's unfortunate for that situation. But that, that gets into the fact because recovery is real. Now, does that help? Does stuff like LeBron talking about his recovery, Tom Brady playing at 44, does that help you have that conversation with your athletes about the role of recovery? 
It, it does. It does. You get quite, you, I always joke around in my profession. No one ever comes in my office and asks me about the sliding filament theory of muscle contraction. It's not something people ask about. College kids just don't care, right? No, no. one's ever been like, hey, Ange, we're talking about the Krebs cycle this week. It's not a thing we talk about, right? <laughs> but what happens is if something gets hot on Instagram or TikTok, whatever it might be, or, you know, ESPN does a 30 for 30 on something, those are the conversations we have to have, right? So I always say to young people in our profession, if you're going to get in it, you gotta be in, you gotta be involved in pop culture because those are the questions you're gonna get asked. And if you can't provide the answer, they're gonna believe whatever they saw online, or they're gonna believe the person that can answer the question, right? So, like for example, a couple of years ago, the the, uh, the high altitude mask that Steph Curry was wearing went under was a big thing. Everybody wanted to buy one. Everybody's talking about it now. Guys like me, you realize there's not a lot of value to that, right? For a bunch of different reasons, we have to get into. But I had to like talk six kids out of buying one the weekend that commercial came out, right? Um, then you got to speak their language a little bit, explain to them why some of the things you see online are great, right? Um, and the, the thing about recovery is a weird thing is that recovery is easier than training, right? So a lot of times you don't like training, you'll latch on to the idea that recovery is super important. But then my question becomes, what are we recovering from if we're not training hard to begin with, right? <laughs> so it's got to be it's funny, but that's kind of true, right? So, like, do I think, you know, foam rolling and maybe cryotherapy and stuff like that is great for your legs after heavy squat day? Yeah. But if you didn't do the heavy squat day, there's no reason to do all the recovery stuff the next day, right? Um, and I think that's kind of a uh, kind of a thing not a lot of people want to hear, but that's it, it's kind of true. So you got to do the work and recover from the work. And there's so many ways to do both of those these days. It's awesome. There's a million ways you can tax your muscles. There's a million ways you can make your muscles recover. Um, you can really take your time and find what's out there good. But I think you got to kind of educate people on all these recovery methods are great. And there's definitely a time and a place for them. But you got to do the work first so your body has something to recover from. And then get stronger, fast, more powerful, whatever you're trying to do. As a collegiate strength coach, do you have a favorite method? Like, say, say for those long run days when you go out and you know you're going to do a high volume, or those interval days or those threshold days when you know you're going to push a faster pace. You know, either for your athletes or for yourself, Angela, what what's your kind of go to recovery method, go to recovery strategy? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a uh, kind of an old school way to look at it. It's a cliche, but the best recovery from a hard workout is an easy workout, right? So what I try to do is if we're, if I'm myself, I'm doing a real hard run. The next day, I'm going to take my time. I'm going to foam roll. I'm going to do a real good dynamic warm-up, right? And then I'm going to, I'm going to try to tag my upper body pretty hard. I feel like that's a good day to train my upper body on the, on the barbell, dumbbells, whatever it might be. And then lower body-wise, I'm going to get some range of motion stuff in, but not be crushing it with weight, right? So I might get a med ball out of a training bar of some kind, maybe some overhead squats, some lunges, some med ball you know, lateral lunges, stuff like that. Try to get those that musculature moving a little bit and then try to get that to recover. And then maybe the next time I train, I kind of reverse that on my upper body recover a little bit and do some actual you know, strength hypertrophy stuff with my legs. Maybe I couldn't do after that hard day. Um, but I think the, summit, the, you know, the worst thing to do, we all know, is just sit still and not do anything. And then the second worst thing we can do is go hard again and possibly injure ourselves or overtrain ourselves. So you got to just kind of, you know, everybody says this coaching is art and science. I think you got to understand the science side of it and how the body works. But then to some extent, it's got to become an art of how do I feel? How do my athletes feel? And how do I manipulate this to have a good day training, even though they might not feel their best because of what we did yesterday? No, man. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. And that's actually the book I'm working on right now. I'm working on 
I'm about halfway through right now, so that that will be coming out. Hopefully, we'll have everything done and we can launch it by uh, Christmas of 2022. Now, Angelo uh, and uh, Gingerelli, right? Angelo Gingerelli, because I don't have your name right in front of me. Um, anything else? Anything else you want to mention? Any questions I didn't ask that you want to talk about? The, uh, Finish strong, your book. No, man. I think we kind of covered it. It's out there right now. It's in Barnes and Noble. It's in the bigger bookstores. It's on Amazon, obviously. Our Instagram is at finish underscore strong underscore book. Uh, we got stuff about the book. We got training tips. And then we just stuff about the running world in general, trying to put out there, not make it just commercial after commercial, trying to give people some good information at, at finish at strong at book. Or, or I'm sorry, at finish underscore strong underscore book. I don't know how I messed it up so bad. I've said it a thousand times in the last couple of months. And then uh, just get out there and keep training, man. I think the show is great as far as giving great information. I stay active well into your 40s and beyond. And then realize that you don't have to be a runner or a weightlifter. You can combine the two and really see good results. That's awesome, man. Angelo, hey, I really appreciate you reaching out. And, and like I said in the first email correspondence we had, you really just had one of the better, you, you, you know, one of the better, more professional, well-written uh, emails. Sometimes I get, hey, you know, listen to this guy. But no, man, you nailed it. I, you know, I think the book is a great concept. If you're a runner, please take a look at Finish Strong because resistance training, strength training will only help your running. And, and Angelo, final, final, final question. Are strength coaches eligible for any NIL? Can you do any name image likeness, or is that only for the athletes? Hey, hey listen, anybody listening to the show, because I know you got a lot of listeners, if you come to me with any kind of endorsement deal, I'm not turning down nothing but my collar. I'm down for anything. <laughs> I, got, I, got, I got a wife that won't stop ordering packages from Amazon. I got a daughter that won't stop growing out of her clothes, and I got a sneaker addiction. So come and move with these offers. We'll sign them and make some money. Let's do it. So the, so the question, so the answer is yes, coaches are eligible for NIL. Well, the crazy thing is they were never not. They were always eligible to, to sign these deals. Only the players that were not able to profit off their image and likeness until the last year or two. Um, and I, I personally, I think that's a great thing. I mean, that's a whole different conversation. But, I mean, come on. I mean, I mean you see how much money the, at some of the bigger schools, how much money, these, how much revenue these schools generate off these 20-year-old kids. And, yes, they're getting a college education, but, come on, let's be real. They should be getting a little bit of that, too. Hey, man, real quick, we had three really good basketball players a couple of years ago, and we put them everywhere. They were on billboards. They were on the side of the buses. They were, on, they were everywhere in New Jersey. Right? They were three great guys. And every time I pulled up next to the, the, this bus advertisement of them, it was them from the, from the chest up in the seat in all Jersey, I always had two thoughts. One, it's amazing they're not getting paid for this. And two, who photoshopped these pictures? These guys are not this handsome in real life. <laughs> There were three regular-looking dudes. All of them looked like Denzel Washington. And I used to say this to their face all the time, and they'd laugh about it. But, um, yeah, I think you're right, man. If we're going to put your picture on, on a bus or a billboard, yeah, you should probably get a couple dollars for it. Fair enough? Yeah, no, hey, man, this, this is great stuff. I appreciate the conversation. The book is Finish Strong, Resistance Training for Endurance Athletes. Angelo Gingerelli uh, is assistant or associate strength and conditioning coach at Seton Hall University. Let's go strength and conditioning coach. Strength and conditioning coach, Seton Hall University. And Angelo, I'm not sure if I'm going to get to the NSCA National um, this year, but I know the next time NSCA National is in Vegas, I plan on going. Uh, do you ever do you go to that show at all? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do remember going to national. I've spoken to most of the regional events. I'd like to speak there eventually, so I'll put that in the, in the universe on your show. But hopefully I'll see you there. Yeah, likewise, man. Hey, take care, Angelo. Thanks for your time today. Thank you very much. Keep up the good work. 
Now, this is a tip for anybody out there who, who wants to get on the podcast, who wants to come on, talk about their book, talk about what they're doing. I am always up for getting those emails, especially if you're a listener. Angelo wrote one of the best emails I've seen, very formal. He used a formal heading. He used formal business writing style. Big tip that matters. I generally do not respond to emails that begin with, hey, that just you go back and read how to write a business letter. And you'll understand why I don't respond to emails that begin with, hey, if that makes me sound like a boomer, if that makes me sound old, guess what I am. When you're writing to somebody you don't know in a business sense, you never start with, hey. You can start with that person's last name, the proper greeting, Mr., Ms., whatever it might be, and go into it from there. And that's exactly what Angelo did. He said he wrote a book, gave me a little bit of his, about his background, and it was a great topic. And again, this is such an important topic, especially as we get ready to transition from our indoor training to our outdoor training. There's nothing that saddens me more is when I talk to somebody and almost every year in the gym, I have at least one conversation like this. I see a member that I know is an avid outdoor, you know, enjoys an out, being outside, being active outside, and I see them wearing a boot or see them hobbling around. I ask what happened. Well, you can guess. They, they invariably tell me that they went out and they did it too hard on the first workout and they over-injured themselves. That's why I'm running these episodes right now. That's why when I got the chance to interview Dr. Stone, the orthopedic surgeon, I wanted to speak with him. I had the chance to speak with Angela. I wanted to speak with him because I want you to give. I want to give you the information about how to train so you can go out this summer or anytime you want to be outside and enjoy your favorite activities injury free. Information is down below in the show notes. You can pick up a copy of Angela's book. You can pick up a copy of my books, Smarter Workouts: The Science of Exercise Made Simple and Ageless Intensity. High intensity workouts to slow the aging process. I put out content so you can learn how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life. And if you do it right, you can also extend the lifespan. Not a bad deal. Reach out to me, Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. That's Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. Go to Pete McCall Fitness, sign up for my, my email list, and get great content pushed to your email box once or twice a month. Hey, as always, thank you for stopping by. And I do look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness.